Hello, this is Informer, a show that reveals the latest ideas from artists, thinkers, and technologists. Informer invites you behind the screen to meet the people sketching, hacking, and imagining the next versions of our world. I'm Roddy Schrock, your host, and in each episode, I spotlight creative minds grappling with a changing world through art, technology, or often both. And I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast at informerpodcast.com, where you can also find show notes, links, and more information on all of the artists and projects that we discuss. I've known Julia Christensen for quite a long time, since we were both graduate students at Mills College in Oakland, in fact. One of my first memories of her was when we were both in Pauline Oliveros' composition class. Since then, I've kept up with Julie's work on and off over the years, seeing her when she would exhibit in town or by catching up at artist retreats in upstate New York. I think it's the expansiveness of her work that has always intrigued me most, leaping from the micro to the macro with ease. Ranging from her studies and photography of how local communities creatively reuse defunct big box stores, to now creating work intended to communicate life on Earth to beings in other galaxies. She's driven by getting to the bottom of things, even if that means interrogating possibilities alongside jet propulsion engineers. You'll hear what I mean in this podcast. So I began, as usual, by asking her to tell me a bit about her first experiences with art. I'll let her take it from here. So I grew up in central Kentucky uh, in a small town called Bardstown, just south of Louisville, or Louisville, as we say. And um, my mom is a painter and worked a lot in this craft realm, you know, in the 70s. I, when I was in high school, I was really into acting. And I went to Interlochen Arts Academy for my senior year to study acting. At Bard, you know, it was like, I think I was in a play my first semester, and then I was never again in an acting, like an acting class at all. I um, wound up doing electronic music, and uh, video was becoming part of the film department at the time. We had one avid machine that, um, you know, we would have to book to do nonlinear editing on, you know. Um, And then from there is when you and I met as graduate students at Mills College in electronic music. So yes, we can mention here, we go way back. Yes, I was also thinking we might have to explain what an avid machine is. At any rate, yeah, we do go way back. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. Way back to avid machines. Um, you know, meaning one computer that ran Avid video editing software, uh, you know, it's so funny to think we had to have a whole, a whole computer like dedicated to that. So at Mills, when I was doing electronic music, I was kind of on the edge there too, and was a TA in the studio art department in the video, um, video area. And then I went on and did a second MFA at RPI uh, that was more in electronic arts and sort of art as research, et cetera. Um, So academically, kind of all over the place in the arts. Now I teach um, art as research and media art, et cetera, at Oberlin College, which is, um, you know, a very liberal arts based uh, context for the arts in which practice is fully integrated with 
intellectual rigor um, and and that kind of thing. Do you have a sense of what the kind of through lines you might see in terms of your performance background, your um, childhood background with the arts, your current practice, your interest in media arts? Is there a single or multiple kinds of threads that unite all of those types of practice for you? That's such a good question. As an artist, you're working on the project you're working on, and it's hard to see it within the trajectory of everything you do. But I think for me, I um, I get really obsessed with questions about cultural, social, political, economic systems. And I dig into those questions almost in a more um, traditional research kind of uh, like method. And for me, the research manifests as interdisciplinary art projects that spin off and often, you know, specific media or specific processes just kind of match, you know, are, are able to produce the research that I'm, I'm working through. So I think in a way, the mediums and processes for me become outlets to plug my questions into. So I think my questioning and the lines of intellectual, you know, questioning are all very related. The relationships with the mediums are almost secondary in a way um, because I'm open, I'm open, open to using whatever I need. Yeah. And I, I think that really came through for me in reading your latest book, Upgrade Available, because it cemented, and I and I have known you, you know, for a number of years, maybe I'll, won't say the actual <laughs> number, <laughs> but, um, but really thinking about your practice over those years, putting it under the rubric of upgrade culture in the most kind of high level kind of conceptual slash research focused, I think it really clicked for me to to see where your practice has maintained that kind of continuity of, of focus and, and in the kind of research that you're doing. And I guess to, to that end, how would you describe upgrade culture? I think that um, I define upgrade culture as the relentless perceived need to upgrade our technology and recordable media to stay relevant. I started making projects that kind of, you know, were about this question. And in a way, I feel like what happens is I get into a series of projects that um, kind of circle around a question like this. And then at some point, it's almost like I've made an album, you know, it's almost like I've made a record of, uh, you know, these hits related to upgrade culture or whatever. And it's at that point that I think, you know what, I need to write all of this down and make it a book. And so the Upgrade Available book, um, you know, manifested in that process. And my first book, similarly, you know, about big box reuse, which we could also say is about upgrade culture, really, is, you know, a, an investigation of um, how communities have reused abandoned Walmart and Kmart buildings across the United States for civic purposes. And in that case, too, I was like, 
looking into this, making photographs and videos, et cetera. And then eventually I was like, I need to write this down and, and make it a book. So the book in a way becomes like an envelope, um, you know, for, for all of the meanderings and projects, um, etc. So yes. The thing that really struck me um, when reading your book just recently and getting ready for this today was just how what you're doing is like you're bringing to the surface and explicitly naming this kind of social pressure to maintain ourselves in the culture that we live in, we must upgrade. And that's just like such a a given, especially when it comes to media and, and technology actually naming that almost feels like a radical act because it it's this thing that is so often kind of implied or has consequences that aren't immediately visible and you're really shining a light on that and and bring it to the surface and in in upgrade available you were in conversation with Ravi Argwal and he said something that really kind of struck me along those lines uh in that conversation he, he stated, or he, I guess, asks, should we not have a choice about how to relate to technology and what is actually being offered to us and what are we giving up in exchange? And I feel like that um, really gets to the heart of the kind of questions that, that you're asking. And I think that exchange that we're all participating in is something that just so rarely gets acknowledged my question to you, I guess, would be, you know, how, how do you think about that exchange? And what is it that you would like people to sort of understand that perhaps they're not understanding in terms of that exchange? I mean, I think that is the open question that I'm trying to um, have a conversation about, right? I mean, it's like, um, we we don't feel as if we have agency really in a lot of ways um, in terms of our relationship or relationships really with uh, technology um, simply because so much of upgrade culture is um, uh, implied and uh, just sort of ubiquitous and expected. Um, planned obsolescence is, you know, the heart of um, uh, technological production and design, you know, on so many levels that it becomes harder and harder for us to even think critically about, um, you know, let alone take agency, but even to think about it um, becomes really difficult. And and then there's guilt involved and there's, you know, like we we want to use the technology and there are a lot of great things about the technology. I mean, you know, I'm a media artist. I teach about this stuff. You know, I, I'm, I'm part of this realm um, as we all are. And it becomes very complicated, I think, to figure out, you know, um, where to insert our... Uh, autonomy, you know, in the whole relationship yeah. with with electronics, technology is embedded, you know, in in everything, you know, at this point. And so um, it's almost it becomes even more complicated to think about how how to um, critically manage our e- electronic lives and thus our e-waste production. Right. I guess just to back up a little bit, I mean, one of the things that I loved about your book was it it was such a 
poetic exploration of time as a way to understand our relationship to technology, to institutions, and then I guess sort of the the cosmos, if you if you would. I I was wondering um, around that e waste question that that feels like something that um, is such a hard topic to even broach. But kind of by taking this very poetic approach and some of the images in the book and uh, your own stories of, of traveling to, to visit machines that had been discarded in Ohio, but were now being utilized in uh, factories in India. Um, it, it was a very, uh, it was such a, um, I don't know the right word exactly. I, I actually had a lot of feelings for these machines <laughs> upon reading the book, which surprised me. I was like, I'm, I'm really, you know. And then the the waste component of that becomes extraordinarily complex. What are things that we should know about where e-waste goes and, and how it's um, sort of, you know, globally digested, I suppose? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the main thing that I learned, I, I, I traveled to India multiple times to visit e-waste processing um, plants. You know, I think uh, the major thing that I uncovered here is that it is uh, next to impossible to get any kind of empirical data about e-waste since it's defined so differently around the world, so differently within, you know, single countries that there's no, uh, it's really hard to get numbers that tell an empirical story about Mm -hmm. e-waste. Also, you know, uh, the e-waste processing um, kind of uh, system doesn't assign very much responsibility to the makers of the technology. It assigns more responsibility to the consumers, which is super problematic uh, because, you know, it's like if Apple was um, in charge of the trash that would eventually be Apple trash, it would look a lot different than if all of us who bought iPhones were in charge of what that trash looked like. And so it's gotten to a point where this paradigm um, is absolutely unsustainable. I mean, it 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 is placing that on the um, on the consumer. It just isn't going to work in the long run, um, as we're beginning to see now. Um, so that's kind of like the major overarching broad stroke. Um, I would also say that there's very little thought. You know, when someone has great intentions and takes their computer to the e-waste recycling center, there's very little knowledge or thought about where that computer goes after that step. So the whole process is just very opaque. I think this is a global issue that we're going to have to begin to think about as a planetary kind of uh, community. It was really striking, too, how you... um not only were you interested in the kind of abstract notion of what this waste was, but you actually documented where it, you, you went to the, you visited the places where the e-waste was living in some ways. And, um, and you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about that too, was that it, it gave technology such a, um, 
it just reminded me that you know technology is built from components that come from the earth these materials are mined and they have to go somewhere at the end and that there is they don't just disappear when you when you throw it away and it was uh, uh, very kind of almost shocking to just realize the extent to which um this is a global crisis in some ways, you know, in terms of, of managing that. And then then you sort of take the uh, story to um, how technology affects our lives uh, and our interiority. And then it kind of gets to the, the heart of so much of what you're exploring. And I think that has to do with memory and, and time. And at one point, you say that in your life, the loss of your computer memory altered your own memory. That felt very resonant with me and also a, a bit chilling. Could you talk a little bit just about what you're seeing in terms of technology's relationship to time in particular? Maybe I'll just say that uh, the structure of the book, just for, for clarity in this conversation, I, I structured the book in terms of these different states of time. The first one I call technology time. And this is about the very short cycles of time that are imposed upon us, uh, you know, in this um, upgrade culture kind of way. So that's that's the first thing that I look at. And then the second area is called lifetime, which we're talking about, you know, in terms of how um, how our use of technology um, impacts the way we look at generational uh, sort of human lifetimes. And then the next the next cycle of time is institution time and looking at how institutions, you know, maintain a cultural narrative over multiple human lifetimes when upgrade culture makes everything, you know, difficult to, to make coherent. And then the final uh, section is about space time and thinking about technology over, you know, light years, you know, and centuries how we intervene in those large timescales when we're operating really from day to day on technology time. So, so that might give a little framing. So yeah, I mean, I think that technology, um, especially operating in technology time, trains us kind of in the generic large sense um, into uh, just thinking short term about Everything. I mean, it makes it incredibly difficult to look forward or look backward or think historically or, you know, think about the the future when the upgrade is always available. And, um, you know, we don't really know what's coming next. I think that that trickles out into all kinds of things, the 24 hour news cycle, the media world you know, et cetera, clickbait. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. The way technology designed for short periods of time impacts the way we live. So that's kind of, um, I think, the major question that I unpack in, in the beginning, in the technology time section of the book. But yeah, in terms of our lifetimes, I mean, I think Another sort of interesting existential kind of relationship that we have with this technology is in a way it acts as a memento mori, right? I mean, it's it, we save images and, and things as this reminder of mortality, really, and also as an attempt to transcend time. I mean, we, we 
embed a kind of legacy consciously or subconsciously in um in this ephemera that we collect throughout our our lifetimes and so again it makes our relationships with technology really complicated because you know our memories are embedded on these objects um and, and yeah, I mean, like you're you're saying, there's a point in the book where uh, a computer of mine gets stolen from a from a car, and I had recently been on a major research trip, and all my work was there and not backed up, and you know, I realized how much I documented on my computer uh, to almost take the place of my cognitive memory. You know, it was kind of like. I'm going to take all these pictures so I can get back to this later and really look at it. And I found out about this. Um, psychologists have determined this new, well, not a new form of memory, but um, one form of memory is called transactional memory, where we uh, kind of assign different memories to different people in our social group. You know, like I think I say in the book, like the, the, administrative assistant in my department knows all the deadlines for everything. So I know I don't have to remember all of those because she'll tell me when something is due. And we're beginning to form those uh, relationships more fluidly with our computers and phones and things. It's kind of like a bookmark memory system. Like, I don't need to remember where to look for this because I can bookmark it and look later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that our relationships with these ubiquitous devices are altering the way we cognitively, you know, we use our cognitive energy to form memory. Which I think is such an interesting angle on technology, because I, I feel like it's uh, so, so much of the conversation around technology's impact on us these days is around things like artificial intelligence. And that feels very much kind of forward looking in a sense, like it's very much like, oh, I'm being influenced now for a future decision that I will make. What what you're sort of suggesting is that our relationships to these technologies are actually influencing our sense of the past as well. I keep the thing that I keep wondering about is like, what what am I losing? <laughs> as our memories are embedded on these these computer chips, our reliance, as Aria Dean points out in conversation with you, our reliance on these platforms that we feel have our long-term best interests in mind, but in fact are very temporary uh, spaces to to hold our memories. I, I have it, so much concern about what are the things that um, we are actually losing as we rely on this more and more and more and more. And then we forget that we're, there was a time when we didn't even rely on it. You know, and I, I, I appreciated that you don't necessarily seem to take a, totally dystopian or kind of utopian, you know, perspective on this, you know, and it feels, you know, what, what is your sense of what we are actually losing in this process of change that society has been going through for many years and is now seem, feels more accelerated? It's so interesting to think about loss, you know, in this context. And I mean, the other, the other, um, you know, major, loss question is um, kind of around data storage, right? And like the storage of ephemera and how these systems are not stable. You know, we're, we're saving using all these platforms and systems that um, uh, are not 
built to be stable over the long term. Uh, I mean, paper and archival ink are still, you know, the most, have the most fidelity um, over the long term. And so, you know, you begin to also question what are we going to lose in terms of, a, you know, a cultural history that's embedded on all of these, um, on all of these different formats. I love the conversation that's um, in the book with Rick, Rick Prelinger, um, who, you know, just sort of proclaims that like, loss is part of the deal. Like loss is, we've always had loss and we've always, we've always let go of certain processes to make room for new processes. And we, we've never had a full 360 view of what happened in the past. So, um, so in a way, we are still living in the same reality in which loss is generative and loss is part of uh, the story. It becomes more difficult when loss is so apparent, right? Because, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, I like, you know, I remember my life before cell phones, you know, before email. And like, there's a certain kind of attention span and attention focus that I do feel like I've lost to some extent, you know, yep. given this new networked lifestyle and that kind of thing, which isn't all good. I don't think we're done yet. You know, I think that as we move through this uh, networkization of the world, some things will stick, some things won't, you know, um, and we might, yeah, we might find ways to use these t these tools that allow those things that we miss to um, reassert themselves socially. But I think that, you know, this this idea that you mentioned about it not being utopian or dystopian necessarily, I think that kind of sits in the space of loss is a generative kind of part of how we build um, histories and futures. And uh, there are those of us who are constantly trying to find those holes and subverting kind of the mainstream like uh, history and past and future to uh, build out what's missing, et cetera, which, you know, is kind of an exciting space to be in. You, you close the book with um, something that I rarely see in technological discourse, which was a very, I took it as a very intentional, almost meditation on a sense of time that is something that is outside the realm of typical human experience. And that's what you're calling space time. I would love to just hear from you a little bit about like why you chose to take that perspective to, to close and what you were trying to get at by asking the reader to think about everything that we've been discussing so far from a perspective that is outside of our everyday experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, the way that the book ends and the reality that I'm currently living, the, the ending of the book sort of is a prelude to like where I am now. But, um, you know, I, I couldn't have dreamed up what ended up happening because, you know, so I'm working on this, um, this uh, upgrade culture work. I, I had a fellowship at the LACMA Art and Tech Lab to 
look at um, you know LACMA at the museum and and understand um, upgrade culture as it relates to institution time and that kind of thing. And through that, I met the scientists and engineers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab who were also thinking about upgrade culture, but in the context of, you know, very long-term space missions. And specifically, there was a group of um, scientists and engineers uh, at the Innovation Foundry at JPL who were um, conceptualizing a spacecraft that would fly to Proxima B, which is an exoplanet in the Alpha Centauri star system, 4.2 light years from Earth. Um, the idea is this craft would travel at a tenth of the speed of light, which would mean it would arrive at Proxima B in 42 years. They uh, were imagining this craft would leave in the year 2069 as a 100-year uh, nod to the Apollo uh, landing. And so we're talking about conceptualizing now technology that would leave Earth in the year 2069 would then travel for 42 years into interstellar space um, to arrive at its destination and then send data back, you know, traveling at the speed of light, so a little over four years back to Earth, and designing communication systems on Earth that would be able to um, receive that data despite all the upgrades that have happened, you know, in our terrestrial realities uh, in the meantime. So, um, you know, it's kind of like the ultimate. I, I had been meandering through e-waste and, you know, museum archives, et cetera. And then like, bam, like, what about spaceships, you know? And, and so, uh, so I engaged in, um, you know, some really deep studies and conversations with these people um, for a number of years. And uh, we've, we've actually started a company to support our project, which I'll, I'll get back to. But um, one of the questions, you know, that was part of this, they, uh, and I know this relates to a lot of the stuff that you're thinking about right now, Roddy, is, um, you know, they really think that artists help them think through their thinking in a way, you know, and so um, they, JPL especially really encourages artists to be at the table in these conversations to um, think conceptually about, you know, how to build uh, stuff like this. And so they asked me to conceptualize an art piece that could be embedded on you know, this interstellar spacecraft as a way of sort of fleshing out the design. And, um, you know, of course, we started talking about the golden records on the Voyager, you know. Um, and uh, although I think that is a very inspiring time capsule floating out there on the interstellar, uh, you know, interstellar space, um, you know, I also obviously recognize the deep issues with representation, um, et cetera, that are inherent in any kind of project like that. I mean, you know, who am I to determine a record full of, uh, you know, sound files that, um, that represent life on earth, you know? I started thinking about creating an art project that um, was was sort of told from outside of the human experience. You know, I started to think about who will be here on Earth 
from the beginning of the mission till the end of the mission. There are species that live that long and can probably tell a story about life on Earth uh, that is a little more encompassing than the human story, you know. How do I get outside of technology time and lifetime and institution time to actually tell a story about Earth, you know, on space time? Um, and so it was through all of that that we landed on trees as a sort of cornerstone of our ecology that could tell this longer term story of life on Earth. And so we've built a system um, that is... Uh, it harnesses the dielectric properties of trees, living trees, um, to turn them into giant living antenna. Um, we are collecting data at the site of a um, series of, of trees around, around the world um, to tell a long-term story about um, uh, temperature, light, water, etc. And we're building a small spacecraft that can orbit this planet to test components um, and to test communication over the long term. So the whole system is designed to last for 200 years. And um, the CubeSat and the, the small spacecraft uh, traveling around our planet will be in direct communication with these living trees. Uh, and sending data back and forth, the trees about their operational sort of experience and the um, satellite about its operational experience. And we're sonifying all of this data um, using good old Max MSP. And, um, and so basically, ultimately, we're creating a song between the trees and the CubeSat that will last for 200 years. And the aggregate of this song can be inscribed on, you know, future interstellar spacecraft, um, uh, like a golden record, you know, but this time the record is not from humans. It's a story told by trees. That's an incredibly beautiful project. This This focus that you're taking to an understanding of time that is just so far outside of the way that we typically operate and how we're being kind of asked to operate, it just radically recenters the notion of what, you know, technology could be in our lives if technology were driven by the kind of exploration that you're doing and the kind of thoughtfulness around time and human experience, if that was a driving force in the way that we develop technology we could be at such a different place, you know, as a species. You know, something that's been really exciting is just as you're saying, sort of flipping the script on design practices and sort of the, the priorities, you know, because a lot of the engineers who would come into the room when we're like, well, we need this CubeSat to operate for 200 years. They would be like, well, no, I mean, it's not going to happen. You know, we can make it do X, Y, Z, but we can't make it last forever. And we're like, but what if we do? You know, what if we do? What if that is the design priority? And then they start to say, well, you know, if we didn't have to make sure it does 
these other sort of, um, you know, experimental things that we're usually working on. And if we really are designing for longevity, yes, we can do that. And, uh, and just seeing the light bulbs go off. I mean, really the biggest conceptual hurdle was, was convincing all of these engineers to design for longevity. And once they got their heads around that, the whole conversation changed. And, and even the way the satellite looks is different because it is being designed with longevity as the primary, um, you know, design uh, priority. And the other thing I'll say about that is including trees within the technological system, um, yeah, allows us to think outside of our own uh, time spans, you know, like we're designing these antenna systems for trees and the trees dictate how the design works, you know, I mean, different trees have different electric properties and, you know, have different foliage, you know, properties, et cetera, that shift everything. So the human designers are having to, you know, customize this stuff for the trees, um, which is just another wonderful exercise in flipping the script and, you know, getting outside of our, our heads, you know. And so, you know, I hope that this project, as it grows and, um, you know, and projects like this uh, can allow this conversation to happen specifically among design communities. You know, how do we uh, transcend or evade the, um, the laws of consumerism and capitalism to think about technology with other priorities in mind. And um, of course, artists are doing this all the time. We're making technology do things that it was not meant to do, uh, which, you know, in turn uh, generates new forms of technology. Uh, and so I hope that this question of like, you know, it kind of goes back to this thing that Ravi said, you know, that you brought up at the beginning of this conversation, like, you know, what is our relationship with this stuff? Like, how do we have agency here and design technology that serves us uh, in ways that are maybe more closely related to our human, you know, existential needs rather than, uh, you know, the consumer market? Certainly the thing that gives me optimism is when I talk to people like you and you're reminding me that there are these versions of what could be that like nothing is written in stone in terms of where we're at in terms in, in our relationships with technology and that we, you know, we could have more agency. And I, I just find that so immensely exciting. Yeah. One more thing. Um, I think it's important for me to, to mention so my collaborators and I have formed this nonprofit uh, organization in the state of California called the Space Song Foundation. And um, it is, you know, its, it's uh, primary purpose is to support the Tree of Life project um, simply because, you know, we got to the point, this isn't a NASA project, it's not a JPL project. Um, it's, it's, you know, not a a LACMA project, you know, it, all of these big institutions that um, kind of supported the, the uh, informally supported the, the brainstorming phases and everything, um, we realized that it is um, 
consequential, critical, important for us to have our own autonomous uh, organization that is supporting this project. Uh, so it isn't misconstrued as, you know, a NASA project or, um, uh, you know, some other federally granted uh, project. So it's um, important to note that the Space Song Foundation is... Um, is uh you know the home the home for the project now and um that will be coming online very soon the space song foundation we're um doing a kickstarter in october to uh launch the first two trees which will be in new york and los angeles um so more to come on all of that I am so excited to see where that goes. These are visionary scientists and uh, engineers who, again, you know, at this moment where we're seeing capitalism and consumerism like take over outer space, you know, again, being able to bring it back to questions about science and exploration and um, and technology on a human planetary level um, it's it's just really a, a wonderful moment. Could I ask you to share a little bit about a project of yours that you did some years ago that I very much enjoyed, the Chuck Close tapes? It really came to mind today, learning of his passing yesterday. Kind of just wanted to maybe hear you say a little bit about how that fits into these larger arenas of research and, and practice that that you're undertaking now because I, I think it's it's an interesting angle to understand you know your relationship to to media and technology yeah wow so I didn't I didn't realize that but that does you know put a put a point on it so yeah the check close tapes uh which an iteration of showed at iBeam um a colleague gave me um, boxes and boxes and boxes of tapes, which he said had come from um, Chuck Close's, I don't know, Chuck Close had recorded all of these tapes. So uh, I had these boxes and boxes of tapes that had been, uh, they were just like VHS tapes with stuff recorded off the television. And I mean, there were a thousand of them. It was like so many tapes. And so my colleagues said that they had come from Chuck Close and that Chuck Close had recorded all of this stuff off the television, uh, but that, I don't know, Pace Gallery or, or someone in New York, they had these stored in the basement. They didn't want them stored there anymore. And they uh, handed them to my colleague and, you know, they were like, can Oberlin students use these for anything? And he was like, ah, sure. So he brought them back to Oberlin and then they sat here for a long time. And then I discovered them and I was like, what you know this is crazy like is is there some kind of chuck closeness like embedded in the stuff that he recorded you know off of uh you know off the television in the 90s and uh so so i took the tapes and i started to digitize some of them and categorize uh, different kinds of clips that were recorded on the tapes. And eventually I got in touch with him via a, a studio assistant. And, um, you know, I was just like, what are these tapes? Can you tell me something, you know, to give a little context to this? The message that came back was that Chuck was fine with me using the tapes, but um, he didn't really know if they were or weren't his the, he wasn't he wasn't going to claim, you know, if they were his tapes. 
Um, which in a way made it even more interesting because it was like, you know, if he did claim that they were his tapes, then they become some like, you know, ephemera of Chuck Close's and he wasn't ready to claim that. Um, so, uh, you know, then this question came up about like, if these were just anybody's tapes, would we have saved them like this all over the country for all this time? You know, and what kind of cultural capital does a big collection of VHS tapes like this have anyway, even if they aren't, you know, associated with a celebrity? And uh, and so the Chuck Close tapes was um, a series of video montage uh, clips that I had made um, out of these tapes. And then I also exhibited some of the tapes within like plexiglass like um vitrines to kind of elevate their preciousness and and just ask questions about you know this kind of e-waste when the e-waste different kinds of financial and economic capital are embedded in this trash depending on context you know so like the same material in an e-waste dump you know on the other side of the world has has entirely different economic and financial capital than it does when it is the trash of a celebrity. So that that project, I, I think uh, I talk about in the lifetime section of um, of the book and in the uh, conversation with Car Corey Archangel, um, he and I uh, talk about that. I should say that in the book, there are about 10 conversations that I have with people you know, who work in these areas of the upgrade and the transcripts of those conversations are um, sort of inserted throughout my writing in the book. I, I just love that story. I mean, I just, and I just, that, that is a project that I've just, you know, just continues to kind of resonate in so many ways. I guess finally, uh, where can people find your book? Yes. So um, the book is uh, published by Dancing Foxes Press in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, it is distributed by DAP, um, so artbook.com, I guess it is. Um, and yeah, you can get it at bookshop.org. Um, it's available, you know, in bookstores near you. So um, go to your independent local bookshop and, uh, and look for it there. What I love about artists with a research-based practice is that they look outside themselves for answers and then fearlessly shift their focus as new revelations emerge. Like Julia, artists who work this way bring a quality of real-time investigation and appraisal to their work. This faith in process, constantly creating from the elements discovered, whatever they may be, strikes me as having the quality of altruism, something shared among all the artists I admire. If you'd like to find out more about the progress she's making on the Tree of Life project since we recorded this interview, or to order her new book, I encourage you to check out the links on the episode page from our website. Until next time, thanks for joining me at Informer, and I hope that you'll join us again.